first we begin with Second um, Kings chapter 14. And uh, then after 2 Kings 14, uh, we'll read Jonah chapter 1 and the first uh, three verses. So first, Second uh, Kings 14. And we'll be reading verses 23 uh, through 29. <clears throat> Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the king of his kings of Israel. Then Zechariah his son reigned in his place. And then please uh, turn to uh, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 and the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. <clears throat> oh, gracious God in heaven, we do uh, praise you and thank you for your, for your word. We know it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we uh, come to these passages, as we begin this new uh, study, we just pray that you would give us wisdom and insight by the power of your spirit. And that as your word goes forth, that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, we begin a series through the book of Jonah. Now, the story of Jonah is certainly one of the most well-known of all Bible stories, uh, popularized especially by uh, children's storybooks. And it's often presented as exciting, as an exciting adventurous story full of, of surprises and, of course, an amazing miracle with the great fish uh, swallowing Jonah and then spitting him out on dry land three days later by the Lord's command. One of the dangers of such a Bible story becoming so popularized, 
especially when it's a curtail to children, is that many of the facts get lost, glossed over, or even purposely distorted. And this leaves a lasting impression in people's minds, so that when they actually uh, come to the Bible and they read in the Bible the story of Jonah, it's like they're reading a totally different story. A story that's actually much more complex. A story with a hero, Jonah, who really isn't much of a hero, even though he is a prophet of God. Certainly not one that you would want to imitate. The story of Jonah is much more than just a prophet of God getting swallowed by a whale, if it was a whale, and we're not uh, told specifically that it was a whale. But it certainly reveals to us some important truths about God, about salvation, about ourselves and our sin nature, and it also especially points us toward the Lord Jesus Christ giving God's people in the Old Testament, God's people in the New Testament age, and even to God's people today, a sign of the glorious hope of the resurrection from the dead. And so as we look at this familiar story, Lord willing, we will uncover some of these important truths, as well as recover some of the facts that have been missed in many popularized versions of this story. But to begin, we're going to first get some of the the background of Jonah, the man, and and the time in which he lived. And one of the important things that we need to establish first right off is that Jonah was a true historical person. He was called by God to be a prophet. And we see this first in 2 Kings, which is a historical book of the Bible. 2 Kings 14, verse 25, according to the word of God... Uh, the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. And then again in in Jonah chapter 1-1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Well, we learn here first that Jonah was the son of Amittai. Now, though these are the only two mentions of Amittai in the scriptures, Well, the fact that Jonah is here named along with his father helps to establish that he was a real person with a real family. In fact, this is really uh, one of the key reasons why we have so many uh, genealogies in the scriptures. Uh, It's to tell us, the modern reader, that this is involving real people who actually lived at particular times in history, uh, throughout history. Well, the historicity of Jonah is also asserted by the fact that the writer of Kings gives us Jonah's hometown, which is Gath-Hefer. The Holy Spirit guides the biblical writers to include these people in place details, again, to confirm their existence. And so, someone reading this contemporaneously uh, with, uh, at that time, they could have gone to visit Gath-Hefer, and they could have met Jonah's family and heard about the prophet who was from that town. And so, again, it's a, it's a way that the Spirit uh, in, uh, helps to establish the truth of his word. Now, Gath-Hefer was in the northern kingdom of Israel and actually was only just a few miles from uh, the town of Nazareth, which we know is the hometown of another prophet of the Lord. Well, this leads us to another thing that we learn here, 
and that Jonah was indeed a prophet of the Lord God of Israel. Now, when we often think of a prophet, we may just think of of someone who foretells future events. And though that's certainly one of the things that prophets did, it isn't their only or even their chief purpose. The prophet is a messenger of the Lord who simply was called to declare God's word. The declaration can simply be they're revealing God's will to the people. It can be bestowing a blessing upon the people of God. It can be calling them to repentance. It can be giving warnings. And of course, it can also involve foretelling what is to come at some future date. So Jonah was a prophet. And in 2 Kings, we see that Jonah declared God's will for the northern nation of Israel, that they would reclaim territory that had been lost since the time of King Solomon, when the nation of Israel had its broadest borders. But in the book of Jonah, Jonah's prophecy is quite different. In fact, it's somewhat unusual. For though there were many prophets of Judah and Israel who declared God's will of either blessing or judgments upon heathen nations, they actually often did so within the confines of their own nation. Right? They were speaking about people out there, from the comforts of home, so to speak. But Jonah is called by God to actually go to Assyria, to go to the capital region and to the chief city of Nineveh, and to declare a warning of coming destruction if they don't (coughs) repent and turn from their sin. And so Jonah was called to go into enemy territory, to go really into uh, the, the belly of the beast, as it were, to declare God's word. And what's interesting is eventually that's where he ended up, not just in Nineveh, but even in the belly of the great fish. And so as we, we gather from this, that the job of the prophet, and especially what was given to Jonah, and we'll consider that, Lord willing, uh, perhaps next week, was not an easy one. Especially when they declared God's displeasure against His own people. We know that many of the prophets were persecuted by God's own people and were were put to death because they were declaring God's coming judgment upon them because of their own sin and rebellion against God. But what we gather from 2 Kings and what we see here in the book of Jonah, we actually see that Jonah had a very good ministry. His message, both of his messages, were well received. One was the message that, hey, you're going to reclaim the lands that you lost. And then here, even in Nineveh, when he preached in Nineveh, the people responded positively to his call of repentance. Now, by today's standards, we would say that Jonah had a very successful ministry. And certainly this adds to the complexity of the book when we consider, again, his outright refusal to go to Nineveh. But Jonah shows us that it's not the man or the success of the man that's important. Because we know that God will accomplish his purpose and that he will be glorified regardless of the man or even sometimes even despite the man and what he does or doesn't do. And so Jonah was a true prophet of the Lord. 
But what were the circumstances of the times in which he lived and ministered? Well, again, in 2 Kings 14, we see that Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, uh, from about seven, who reigned from about 790 to 750 BC. Now Jeroboam II is is um, his name is uh, comes uh, is got the namesake of Jeroboam the first, who was really the first king of Israel after the kingdom had divided, and he had a notorious uh, reputation, as we'll see, uh, leading the people into sin. So here, several generations later, we have Jeroboam II reigning 790 to 750 B.C. Now, politically, when Jeroboam first took the throne, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was in a period of decline, having served as a vassal kingdom of Israel, uh, a, 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 as a vassal kingdom under the heavy-handed rule of the Assyrians. And this objection began, especially during the reign of Jeroboam's great-grandfather, Jehu. And during that time, uh, not only were Israel's borders uh, reduced, but even their, their uh, strength and vitality uh, was greatly weakened. But then comes Jeroboam. Jeroboam, would, uh, Jeroboam II would become really uh, the most powerful of Israel's kings. And he would reclaim lost lands, and he would really, in a sense, come the closest to reviving something of the glory of Israel, which hadn't been seen since the time of Solomon, when both Judah and Israel were one united kingdom. Now, it would have been a time of prosperity, and a time of great encouragement and hope for the people. And so that's what the situation was like politically. When Jonah comes on the scene, though Jeroboam's Israel, of course, thrived politically, we know that spiritually it was a wasteland of idolatry, sin, and rebellion against God, getting worse even day by day. Second Kings 14, verse 24, we read of Jeroboam 2, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Now this is a great reminder to us that though there may be an outward appearance of blessing upon a people or even upon a church, it doesn't necessarily mean that all things are well and good on the inside. It's here really that the ministry of the prophet Jonah reveals the abounding love and patience of God toward his people, even toward those who have turned against him and have rebelled against him. Because despite their sin and idolatry, the Lord continued to bless the northern nation of Israel, granting that they would reclaim, at least for a time, that they would reclaim their land which had been taken by the Assyrians. And really, the, the magnitude of this blessing is seen in the reason that the Lord gave this message to, to Jonah to proclaim to Israel. In verses 26 and 27 of 2 Kings 14, we see that, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. 
And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now this likely was really the summation of Jonah's full prophecy concerning Israel and Jeroboam, and uh, they're reclaiming these lands. But we see here, despite their sin and idolatry, though the Lord had uh, put them under a period of chastisement, the Lord remained compassionate and merciful toward them, even giving them every opportunity to turn and repent of their sin. We read in the scriptures that God is long-suffering toward us. This gives that a whole new meaning, and that He truly suffers long with the sins even of His own people. Now, Jonah was likely filled, though, with great joy to to be honored, to, to give, be given the honor to declare this particular prophecy, even when he knew that the people to whom he declared it were wicked and were deserving of God's just judgment. But you see, Jonah understood something of God's unfailing love and his gracious mercy, something that he would later come to resent when it comes to God's mercy toward the heathen Ninevites. Indeed, this will be for us, even today, an important truth that we must come to understand, and hopefully we'll come to understand it much better than Jonah did. That God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion, whether that's uh, those in the church or, or those who would call themselves Christian and yet are straying away from God's truth, God being long-suffering and compassionate with them, giving them every opportunity to turn away from their sins, or whether that compassion is poured out on the undeserving sinners who are out there in the world, in the unbelieving world. Indeed, God will have compassion on whom He has compassion, and He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. That is His prerogative and His right as the sovereign creator of all things. Well, Jeroboam's, with, uh, Jeroboam's rise to power in Israel... Uh, coincided with the beginning of a, a period of brief decline in the Assyrian Empire. You see, Assyria had been expanding their empire for centuries. Nineveh itself, uh, being a, an ancient city, uh, we find um, established way back in, uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. But the, king, the, the kingdom of Assyria had been building this, this empire and expanding it uh, vastly. And they had a tight grip, not only on Israel, but they had also uh, had taken control of, of the, the nations of Tyre and Sidon, Edom, and, and Philistia. That all these kingdoms were these vassals paying tribute to, uh, to uh, the king of Assyria. Now, uh, Adonari IV, who reigned in 810, uh, from 810 to 782 BC, really he was the one who brought the Assyrian Empire to its height of power up to that time. And as you see with the, with the dates that uh, Adonari's reign overlap with the first eight years of Jeroboam's reign. 
Well, as often happens when you have a very powerful leader and then that leader is gone, there's a period of chaos and uncertainty within the empire. And of course, it led to their grip on these other nations weakening, likely then giving opportunity for Jeroboam to move on reclaiming Israel's territory and freeing them from paying tribute to the Assyrians. Now, Nineveh was a chief city of the empire, and it was in the the capital region. The main uh, capital was uh, less than 20 miles away. Thus, Nineveh was given great prominence and influence. But Nineveh, along with the Assyrian Empire machine, were known for their violence, for their cruelty, and for their immorality. In fact, it was so bad that it reached the limits of God's patience toward the wicked and the ungodly, As we see in Jonah 1 verse 2, where God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God, their wickedness had reached God. Not that he didn't know it before, but God was even most patient and long-suffering toward these heathen Ninevites. But now their uh, wickedness had reached a fever pitch. And what's interesting here, in the, the language here in Jonah 1 verse 2, are words very similar to what we read in Genesis 18.20 regarding God hearing the outcry against the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know how that ended for Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, in Jonah chapter 4 verse 5, we see Jonah sitting on a nearby mountain overlooking the city of Nineveh, seemingly really kind of expecting the same spectacular display of God's judgment of, of, of fire and brimstone to fall down upon Nineveh, even as it had done Sodom and Gomorrah many centuries before. But that judgment never came. And Jonah wasn't happy. In fact, Jonah was angry. Angry that God would be merciful to the wicked Ninevites, even as he was merciful to the wicked Israelites. And certainly the irony of this was apparently lost on on Jonah. That he was angry at God's mercy on the wicked Ninevites, and not angry about God's mercy on the wicked Israelites. Jonah was a prophet of God. And he was a prophet in the midst of a wicked and perverse time. A time of wickedness within Israel and also among the nations. We might even say that he was a prophet during a time of wickedness and sin. Both within the church and outside the church. Indeed, a time much like our own. A time when we look around in the world around us and we see uh, the world uh, descending deeper and deeper into sin and and, um, immorality and idolatry. But we also see uh, uh, much of the church striving to imitate and and to copy and imitate the, the ways of the world. In their lawlessness and in their rejection and their disregard of God's truth and His law. And so, friends, the ministry and message of Jonah is certainly needed, needed for us today. Though we certainly could do without Jonah's attitude. But we certainly need to hear the message that he proclaimed. Well, if you consider the office and ministry of Jonah, 
<clears throat> but what about the actual book of Jonah that is before us? Well, the book of Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets, and they're called minor not because they're less important, but simply because they're shorter in length, when especially compared to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But one of the unique features of the book of Jonah is that it's actually not filled with the declarations and prophecies of blessing and judgment that really make up the bulk of the other prophetic books. No, in fact, there's only one prophetic declaration in the entire book. In chapter 3, verse 4, we read this, Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. In, in the Hebrews, in the Hebrew, it's, it's only five words. Now this is, again, very likely just a summary of what Jonah actually said, even as we saw of the summary in Second Kings 14. But, but summary or whole, that's all there is. He just had one simple message, one sentence in four chapters. And so this really puts the focus of the book of Jonah not so much on his message as... It is on himself. Now think about that. As is very telling considering Jonah's prideful and, and selfish attitude. And so we see that the, the book is largely biographical. And it's possible that it was actually even written by someone else moved by the Holy Spirit. Since the uh, third account, uh, it's uh, given in the uh, third person account. But it's also possible... That maybe Jonah himself wrote this at some time after these events recorded. And we hope that maybe he had matured and had come to a better understanding. And perhaps was maybe trying to distance himself from himself. From his earlier self. Well due to some of these kind of unique features. Some biblical scholars are moved to doubt the historicity of the book. And, and how it should be interpreted. They might say well some claim that it's an allegory. That is um, it shouldn't be taken literally because it has all this symbolic meaning. And some claim that it might, it's, just a, it's like a parable. Like one of the parables that Jesus told where it may contain some truths. Like historical people and places are mentioned. But the events themselves aren't necessarily true. But are merely just object lessons that we are to learn some truth from. What well, issue with these two alternate ways of interpretation are, are two key parts of the story. The first is Jonah surviving in the belly of the great fish for three days. And then the second is really the mass conversion of the Ninevites. The whole city uh, and the king turning uh, to the Lord in repentance. And so it basically comes down to a rejection of the supernatural. Well, we need to keep in mind, if you're going to reject the supernatural, well, then there's a whole lot of the Bible that you need to toss out. And sadly, this is precisely what many uh, more liberal theologians and, and some claiming the name of Christ uh, do. They just gut the Bible of everything that appears to be supernatural, that it's all uh, imagery, that it's all poetry, that it's all allegory. But friends, we don't reject the supernatural. We know that our God is the God of the impossible, even creating all things out of nothing in the space of six days. And the God who can do that 
Well, that God can certainly enable a man to survive in the belly of a fish. <coughs> and he can certainly turn the hearts of a wicked people, even a whole city, to faith and repentance. And so we understand the book of Jonah to be a historical account. We've already seen some support for this because of the information that was given in 2 Kings, again, which was a historical book. But there's further testimony to the historicity of the book of Jonah that we find in the New Testament. Testimony even from the very word of God become flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, and then once in Luke's Gospel, Luke 11, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he refers in the context to the repentance of the Ninevites in response to the preaching of Jonah. Now we'll consider those references more fully when we come to them in, in Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4. But, but note this, Jesus refers to Jonah as a historical person. And he also refers to the events, both of the great fish and of the repentance of Nineveh, as real historical events. Jesus uses Jonah as a sign that points to his own resurrection from the dead. Now, Jonah was just a parable or an allegory and not history. Well, then Jesus certainly wouldn't use it as an example to point to the truth and what would become the historical fact of his own resurrection. It would actually undermine that truth. And Matthew 12 and Luke 11, in the same context where uh, Jesus mentions Jonah and his ministry, Jesus also makes reference to the Queen of the South, that is, uh, the Queen of Sheba who visited Solomon. Well, these are also historical figures. And it would have been confusing and nonsensical for Jesus to refer to fictional characters, say Jonah, but then also refer to historical figures to make his point about the truth of the coming judgment. Otherwise, the judgment itself and the reality of the judgment would be called into question as well. And so Jesus' reference to Jonah and the miraculous events in, involving the great fish and the mass conversion of the Ninevites support their historicity. Because if we call them into question, well then we also have to call into question the judgment of Christ, uh, the, the judgment at the end of the age. We also then have to call into question Christ's own resurrection, as well as the hope of our own resurrection from the dead at the end of the age. As we know, the Apostle Paul argues strongly in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we would then deny the resurrection, either the resurrection of Christ or our own resurrection, well then we are without hope. And then we have no forgiveness of our sins. Our faith is in vain. And we of all people are most pitiable. And so we understand that the book of Jonah and the events it records are true historical events from which we can learn much. Now, briefly, we also want to note the structure of the book of Jonah, which is pretty simple and straightforward, as it's divided into two sections, both beginning with the words, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. See that in verse 1 1, and we also see it in chapter 3, verse 1. And these sections, as you look at them, as you read through them, are somewhat parallel to one another. That is, they cover similar themes, but in different settings as a way to emphasize those themes. And so the patterns, as one commentator notes, is something like this. First we have Jonah being called. And then he travels. 
And then he interacts with unbelievers. And then there's a, a great change that occurs. And then each section concludes with Jonah praying. Though in the first prayer, he prays in faith. and the second prayer, at the end, he self-righteously complains. Now what's interesting with this structure is, first, the differing responses of Jonah's calling and where he traveled to. And then you have the similarity of his interactions with unbelievers and the dramatic change that occurs in their lives. And then, as we just noted, the difference between his two prayers. And so it's something like this, different, same, different. Well, the emphasis of the book then is on what's the same. Jonah's witness to the unbelievers and their conversion of faith. And so the book of Jonah is a missionary story. With Jonah, albeit reluctantly, proclaiming God's truth outside of Israel to people of the nations. Giving us a prophetic glimpse of the gospel going forth to the nations. One more note on the structure. And again, we find that just in the structure of Jonah. But there's another note to make about the structure between these two sections. And it's actually really at the tail end of the first, which is the middle of the book. And that is the account of Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish. And so this is the story at the geographic, as it were, center of the book. And often when we find, what we find at the center, again, is the air for emphasis. And in this case, it's the sign of Jonah that points toward Christ and the glory of his resurrection from the dead. And so again, even the structure of the book of Jonah is pointing us toward our hope in Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. I've kind of gotten a little ahead of myself. <coughs> Finally, I just want to briefly touch on some of the key themes that we find here in the book of Jonah. We've already mentioned missions and the hope of the resurrection. But another key theme we'll come across is that God is a sovereign creator. He reigns and rules over all that he's created, including the wind and the waves, the fish and the sea, and the hearts of men. And his sovereignty even extends over the sinful actions of men so that his will is ultimately always accomplished. We'll also discover that God is both a God of justice and a God of mercy. And something that these are contradictory to one another. That they can't exist in harmony. Either God is a God of judgment or he's a God of love and mercy. They contend that he can't be both. But the book of Jonah we discover that he is indeed both. And oftentimes he acts with justice and mercy at the very same time. This is a great mystery to us, and we can't fully comprehend it, but God is truly both just and merciful, and we'll see that in the book of Jonah. Thirdly, we'll see revealed before us God's glorious plan of salvation. Now, we already mentioned this in part in relation to salvation and God's blessing, not just going to the Israelites, but also to those of the nations, right? We have the, the sailors on the ship and the people of Nineveh, both coming to faith and calling upon the name of the Lord God of Israel. Well, this is just for us a further revelation of the covenant promise God made to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as we know, this promise will come to its fullest revelation and fulfillment in the going forth of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile, so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue 
would be blessed by God's gracious salvation. But we also see in Jonah the process of that salvation and how it happens in the lives of those who take heed to the good news that is proclaimed. And we see it in, first in the prayer of, the, of the, uh, the sailors and the reverent fear of the Lord after the storm is calm that leads them to worship the God of Israel in faith. And we also see it dramatically in the entire population of the people of Nineveh upon hearing Jonah's warning because they're pierced to the heart and they humble themselves before the Lord and they cry out to Him in faith, seeking mercy. And so Jonah shows us how undeserving sinners are saved through the proclamation of the gospel. And finally, as we already also already mentioned, the book of Jonah is ultimately about Jesus and the glory of His resurrection from the dead. In fact, when we get to Jonah chapter 3 and read the prayer of Jonah when he's there in the belly of the fish, in that prayer we can imagine that that is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. As He endured the suffering of death and the grave, as He awaited God's promised deliverance to raise Him up on the third day. In fact, in, those, in that prayer of Jonah, we find uh, many expressions also in the book of Psalms. Like Psalm 42, Psalm 69, 88, Psalm 107, and Psalm 130. Again, reminding us of Jesus' words to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection, that Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all speak concerning Him. And we see that clearly in the book of Jonah, that Jonah's prayer is ultimately going to be the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved of God, Jonah is a book about Jesus. And it's a book about our need for salvation and deliverance from sin that only Jesus can provide. And so as we begin this journey together, may you come to know and understand this message of hope. And may you do so all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you for, for this truth, for the, this book that you have put in, the, in your scriptures, Jonah, the book of Jonah. And again, it's a book that's a very familiar story that's very familiar. And even a children can recite all the key parts of the story of the book of Jonah. And yet there is much here, and we look forward to digging in deeper over the, uh, the coming weeks. And we pray that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds to see the truth that is here, especially this message of our hope that is offered to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of forgiveness and your mercy, and the hope of the resurrection from the dead, and glory and power on the last great day. We rejoice and give thanks, O God, that you give us this, your word, to instruct us in these things. And we pray that you would be with us, that you would bless us in our study of this book. And that it would be used to draw us each closer to you, to better equip us as faithful witnesses and servants of your gospel, proclaiming it to our neighbors with boldness, and to going forth, walking in the way of truth, as you have called us. All for your glory, honor, and praise. And so we pray for all these things. And we ask now that you would bless us in these things. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.